You're listening to the Rio Fernando Collaborative Speaker Series. I'm your host, Jim O'Donnell. In this series, we will explore issues of land use, water, and restoration in the Rio Fernando watershed of Taos, New Mexico. I have with me this morning China Dixon, who I will allow to introduce herself in a minute, and Aaron English on the phone. So this morning, we're going to talk about green infrastructure. And when I got here this morning, China asked me, how am I doing? And I said I was really angry. <laughs> I think I've been feeling, uh, feeling this way for a couple of weeks um, about our inability as a society to, to deal with some of the threats that are facing us, particularly climate change, but also the other political threats that are on the horizon. And one of those thoughts that I had this morning was about how if... Towns like ours, communities, states, uh, county governments, as well as corporations, don't take the lead in dealing with climate change and um, the issues that climate change is bringing our way from flooding to fires and so on and so forth. Somebody else is going to take over and find a way to deal with these issues. For example, you know, with power generation uh, companies uh, who are actually working to take us backwards as far as uh, dealing with climate change. As, as far as those companies go, um, at some point, we are going to have a situation where there's some serious proposals on the table to, to nationalize or make public what are currently private-run corporations, energy-producing corporations. And I was thinking about this this morning because Bernie Sanders came out with a proposal on dealing with climate change that does, in fact, uh, propose making the generation of energy public. What I'm thinking about is how if we don't take charge of, uh, if corporations, towns, counties don't take charge of dealing with the impacts of climate change and doing something about climate change, there will be national proposals such as Bernie Sanders' proposal uh, that will take the power out of, out of the hands of the corporations, which arguably might be a good thing. Uh, but when it comes to local government, um, that might not be a good thing. And so that kind of leads into a little bit of our discussion today around green infrastructure and what green infrastructure is, how it can benefit a community like Taos, and looking at some uh, different options uh, for green infrastructure from you know, different examples from, from other communities. So I'm going to patch in China Dixon, and why don't you introduce yourself? All right. Hi, good morning, everyone. So I have many hats that I wear in Taos. Yes, you do. Them, that yeah, is true. That's true. <laughs> we can all agree on that. Um, but one of the hats is that I'm the revitalization fellow with the Rio Fernando de Taos Revitalization Collaborative. And this is a super cool collaborative that is a partnership of a few different nonprofits. We have the Taos Land Trust. We have Amigos, Bra Amigos Bravos. We have the Taos Valley Seque Association. We also have the town and the county and the Forest mm -hmm. Service. Um, the Nature Conservancy and Trout Unlimited as partners in this collaborative. And everyone came together around the goal of not siloing our individual work on revitalizing the Rio Fernando, but rather uh, supporting our efforts collaboratively and working together on that. So all of that being said, this was born, and now the collaborative has gotten these really amazing opportunities to 
spearhead not only work on the Rio Fernando, but also work within the town and county itself, such as green infrastructure projects. And tell us a little bit about your background and yourself. You are a local Taos. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Taos primarily. My background and research focuses on climate resilience for rural arid landscapes. And so after graduate school, I decided to come back to Taos. I had done a lot of my research, even though I was on the East Coast, centered on Taos. Um, and I really came back just to try and give this a go and not sit in a fancy classroom on a desk trying to figure out resilience, but be on the ground and be doing this in the community and with the people that I love, which has been really great. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for coming on this morning. Um, Aaron English on the phone from Santa Fe. Can you please introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Good morning, Jim. China. So I'm based in Santa Fe and I'm an engineer and a practice leader for a consulting firm called Biohabitat. Biohabitat is a national company and we have a bioregional office here in northern New Mexico. And our focus is, is threefold on the whole. Um, so as a firm, we're a group of designers, ecologists, landscape architects, and engineers who are taking a science-based approach to tackling some of the biggest challenges we have with ecological restoration, conservation planning, and regenerative design. My particular focus is water and all things water. Uh, for about the past 17 years, I've been working on ways of managing water that rely on na- the genius of natural systems or the basis of living systems design. And so that translates into things like uh, treating wastewater with constructed wetlands and natural systems, helping clients see their water systems of their projects or their buildings or their sites more holistically and finding ways to harvest and reuse rainwater and gray water. And then helping to adapt green infrastructure and stormwater strategies that have been developed in more of the coastal regions or areas outside of New Mexico, but helping to find ways to apply those in an arid setting and uh, in a way that's complementary to the long cultural histories here and, and very wise knowledge of how water works in this landscape. Cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, about, about 10 years ago, the, the, the way that uh, you and I met, I was working with Habitat for Humanity to um, kind of run a competition up here to get a, a design for a um, green house that Habitat could afford to build for the people that it works with. And I don't remember how exactly I found your your information, but I ended up relying on you quite heavily for for a lot of uh, thoughtful discussion and a lot of really good input. And uh, and so, yeah, I just found you to be an incredibly great resource, Aaron, and I appreciate it. That was fun. It was good to meet you then, too. Yeah. So so what is green infrastructure? Aaron, I'll, I'll give you that first question. Yeah, great. So before I get to green infrastructure, I think it's just interesting to have a little bit of a discussion on what infrastructure itself is. This is something that all of us use, and we very, very rarely stop to think about it. Um, if you Wikipedia definition of infrastructure, it's the basic physical and organizational structures and facilities, such as roads, buildings, or power, needed for the operation of a society or enterprise. And so all of us drive on roads. All of us have um, some level of you know, power that's coming to our house typically from somewhere else. 
unless maybe you're out on the mesa. <laughs> um, if you are, you know, using water in a town and flushing the toilet in a town, you're using the water supply and the wastewater infrastructure. And often, most infrastructure when it comes to water would be considered what's called gray infrastructure. And in its most literal sense, gray infrastructure is literally like a description of the color of the infrastructure used to manage water. Concrete is gray. Pipes, you know, underground. We're often working with water in a way that's unseen um, and that is relying on underground structures, manholes, and systems which um, are not really in engaging the public or the environment around them. So that's infrastructure and gray infrastructure. And over time, it, the realization has come about that that is not the only way, and perhaps in some situations it's not the best way to manage water, particularly rainwater and stormwater that falls you know, on a community or on the landscape or on a building. And so the term green infrastructure is taking that word gray and flipping it around right into this idea that some of our water infrastructure can and should be exposed and be living green, a.k.a. green. And so that term, green infrastructure, has become generally associated with stormwater systems that rely on the natural environment or designs that are based on the natural environment and using plants and soil. I do want to challenge that a little bit because... As a biohabitat's perspective on this, as a, a firm who's we've got offices around the U.S. and we work in all sorts of different environments, and our our high-level goal is to encourage restoration and stewardship. And so, the term green infrastructure for us and for for others in this in this sphere is that we we want to be careful not to limit it only to the discussion of stormwater, because it's so much more than that. And so while that's a worthy objective, um, we define green infrastructure as this, quote, strategically planned and managed networks of natural lands, working landscapes, and other green spaces at many scales that conserve ecosystem functions, restore ecosystem processes, and regenerate healthy, robust, and resilient communities. So that's a lot. Yep. <laughs> and, and that gets at the underlying power of green infrastructure to help transform our communities, particularly in the face of climate change, the anxiety around climate change that people are feeling, and, and the need to adapt and evolve our systems for managing water, particularly here in the Southwest. So if I was to back up and say, answer your question, like what is green infrastructure? I would say at its core, it's a practice of hope because it's a holistic approach. It has benefits that stack beyond you know, the individual pieces to something much greater in its whole. It can be practiced at any scale, including by homeowners, 
private businesses. There's even some like guerrilla gardeners who've gotten in on the green infrastructure game. And, um, and its greatest potential really is at the community scale. So it, it has this ability to bring all sorts of diverse people together. Green infrastructure is a practice of hope says Aaron English. Well, and that's our show right there. <laughs> that about covers it. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a fantastic way of, of looking at that. It's a, it's a wonderful introduction, but I also think, yeah, given the, uh, the, uh, the mood that I'm in this morning, I, it's a beautiful thing to hear um, infrastructure and a, and, a, and, a, and a method of practicing, a process of practicing infrastructure um, as a practice of hope. So that's, that's wonderful. I think it's what's needed. <laughs> yes, I completely agree. I do think it's what's needed. So let's let's start looking at some examples. You know, you you talked about in the in your in the biohabitat uh, definition, you talked about you know networks of, of different types of, of of processes and systems that can fit within the idea of green infrastructure. But let's start breaking that down into some specifics. What might we be looking at for some examples of green infrastructure? Sure. And then yeah. how and so, then on top of that, how those different types of green infrastructure network together and work work together. So green infrastructure examples vary significantly by place. So what might be a great example in Portland, Oregon might be more challenging to implement in Taos, New Mexico. But there are some commonalities and there's a lot of potential potential in understanding that regionality of, of application. So if I was to say what are some examples in New Mexico, I would, I would say that generally speaking, we are talking about green infrastructure here as a way to hold water in the landscape and to rehydrate our, our landscape and you know, support our land and our people by keeping water where it falls and allowing it to do, you know, the job it has to help, you know, grow trees and, and to create more greenery and to support our open spaces. In New Orleans, it would be, you know, maybe a little different in that there, the, you know, there's a lot of challenges with flooding and with um, managing water in, in, you know, a way that, the water quality perhaps becomes more important because of the severe impacts um, on you know, local streams and rivers and, and the ocean. Um, but there are some common pieces even here in New Mexico where you know, water quality, protecting water quality is a, is a goal too. It's just sometimes harder to make that immediate connection. So, so some examples um, that I could give are uh, the way that that designers that we, we talk about green infrastructure, it, we use the word um, best management practices, BMPs, and these are basically like your kit, your kit of tools for uh, managing stormwater. And in like a gray infrastructure approach, that might include like concrete channels or ways of getting water away from buildings or away from roads or away from you know, towns as quickly as, you know, possible and into the river with very little thought on what happens to the, all the water quality along the way. And so some examples here um, that are applicable in northern New Mexico are rain gardens that are designed to 
hold water in their soil and minimize the amount of irrigation that's needed to grow trees while also being ready to fill up with water when it does rain and filter and clean that water before it's released to the, the river. Other examples are um, simple, simple things like disconnecting uh, paved areas from you know, the, the nearest storm drain and providing a way to intercept that water and filter that water uh, through planted, you know, landscape, xeric landscape that you turn inside out. What do you mean? Hold that water. When you say turn inside out, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so even here in New Mexico, when in urbanized areas, we build a lot of our street medians and sidewalk areas and, you know, parking medians in a raised fashion so that they shed water onto the streets around them. And so one of the simplest things that can be done is to make that landscape hollow, flip it around, so that water can run into those areas and not out of them. And those become micro pockets of managing water in a way that's very simple. It's not fancy. <laughs> it involves you know, cutting some curbs and excavating or pl- just planning on that from the start for new projects. And so it's shifting our understanding of or our thinking around how the landscape is built and, and asks us to reimagine these as sponges, right? Every place that we can find to put some water, a little bit of water back, you know, back into the landscape is beneficial. There are some great projects that have been done down here in Santa Fe um, by Aaron Kaufman, who's a, a local hydrologist, on just taking you know, water from some parking lots at the community college, cutting the curb and running them into like, basins that are planted with, with trees and local shrubs. They're basically rain gardens, gardens meant to you know, hold rain. And, and they've done the soil moisture probe tests, and, and it's shown that those, those gardens hold water deep in the soil for a long time and, and are thriving without irrigation. And so, you know, very simple approaches to turning our landscape the other direction. The, the parking lot example is a great one because um, I think about how whenever I go to Smith's or Albertsons or Walmart, someplace like that, and the not only are the parking lots extremely dangerous, but they are very hot. And in, in a lot of places, there, you know, they're, they're, the trees, there's been trees planted within the parking lot, but they're all water-starved. They're all smaller than they otherwise would be. And part of that reason is, is because the, the parking lot's designed to move the water away as fast as possible. So keeping that, funneling that water from the parking lot into the trees, the landscape, not only you could deal with the water, but you can um, improve the, the experience, I guess you could say, of that, of that parking lot. Parking lots are not someplace any of us really like to be, but, you know, we're, we're there all the time. That's right, Jim. And I think in southwestern cities, this is particularly important, but it's, it's true of anywhere that's hot, and those places are increasing with climate change, right? So this, this idea of creating urban oases, an oasis in the urban environment, mm-hmm. is one of the greatest potentials of, of stormwater green infrastructure in the Southwest. And so cultivating our urban trees, 
maintaining our urban forests and our urban forest canopies, even in the parking lot of Walmart, (laughs) can be um, a direct benefit of green infrastructure when done right. And so a lot of cities are looking at this. And um, it's, it's both in a retrofit, but also in, a, in a, like an infill and new construction where the greatest opportunity is, um, is, is to transform what you know, are highly paved areas. Our, our cities and urban areas, even in Taos, have a lot of paving <laughs> that has been put in. And if you think about that, those are all areas that are no longer like allowed to just sink water into the ground, and so they create you know fast runoff, hot runoff, water that's get a lot of you know picks up everything along its way, oil and grease and sediment, dirt, trash, <laughs> all so of that. We've now created a problem that we have you know, often very little filtration before it hits the Rio Fernando or ultimately, you know, makes its way into the Rio Grande. So, so starting even just at the parking lot level, if you think about all that paving and you're directing at least some of it into parking areas or, excuse me, like planted areas, it's like doubling or tripling the rainfall effect, essentially. So that tree, if planted in an open field, might just feel the you know, 15 inches or 20 inches or 10 inches, depending on where you are in New Mexico, of rain. But if you start to direct the surrounding paving and some of that other area, you can effectively double or triple the experience that tree has of what the precipitation is. And so that's the trick of helping to rehydrate the landscape and to to support urban trees to provide shade, reduce that heat island effect that can happen in, you know, highly paved areas, um, is getting that water to them. And then they provide this other benefit of, like, filtering some of those pollutants out, (laughs) providing, you know, more green space, public space, habitat for birds, pollinators, et cetera. The the benefits really, the more you look, the, the bigger they can grow. In a desert landscape like ours, in a place where we are always concerned about water, that um, that tendency and that need to just move the water um, or that paradigm, I guess I should say, because it's not really a need, <laughs> uh, to just move the water off the land as fast as possible and get it into the river or into a channel as fast as possible actually reduces our ability to benefit from that water. China um, was about to chime in, so uh, dive in there, China. Aaron, I so appreciate the definition that you gave of green infrastructure and infrastructure in general. I think that as practitioners and as researchers, we get so comfortable using this language that we hear and speak every day. Um, but I realize in speaking about green infrastructure to even just friends or family members or community members in Taos, how foreign this concept can sound. Or it sounds like this really big thing that is reserved for cities or a very large urban scale. Um, But dialing it back and looking at the way that communities for centuries have always practiced green infrastructure in like very, very localized, very regionally specific and appropriate ways is so important to bring into the community dialogue when introducing these concepts as well. Um, And speaking about parking lots, as a side note, I was sent a pretty funny photo from a friend the other day who's a town planner. I think this is what happens when town planners get very excited. But it was a retrofit of a parking lot in which, so normally when you park and you drive, you are driving on pavement and you park there. And this one had been, I think it was somewhere on the East Coast, but it had turned basically into all grass and the only paved surfaces 
were for your wheels. And so it kept cars very straight also in the parking lot, but all you could drive on were these little tiny strips for your wheels. And the rest of it was totally permeable and saturated, which was great. So when it rains, the water could soak in. It could. I think it would be a bit extreme for Taos because keeping that grass green would end up taking a lot of water. <laughs> well, I think in parking lots, we talk about like um, like Walmart or someplace like that. There's, there's such a huge amount of space. Mm-hmm. Um, and one rain event, as we know, can, uh, can dump a huge amount of water. And so yeah. maybe it would actually be enough. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Um, Aaron, you were giving some examples of, um, of some green infrastructure in Santa Fe, um, in particularly related to, to parking lots. Um, and I know that you and China have been working together on um, some, a potential green infrastructure project here in Taos, a, a test project, if, if that's the way to call it. And so um, I would like to get some more examples from Santa Fe and Albuquerque um, uh, green infrastructure, but I really want to dive into what we might be able to do here in Taos also. So China, mm-hmm. what have you guys been working on? So... Yeah, and this, the demonstration site was uh, primarily the work of Aaron and Rachel Kahn and the town of Taos. Um, So I wasn't in the process of actually developing it, but it's a really sweet and I think a beautiful opportunity to demonstrate green infrastructure and the benefits of it. But essentially it would be a small rain garden in the library parking lot. It would maybe even only take up the space of one parking space. And, you know, I think the issue with that or some of the obstacles that we've run into in implementing this are mostly around financing the project or uh, getting support from the town and the county to do that when right now the town is in a bit of a budget crisis. Um, So working collaboratively, you know, as members of this collaborative to either see this project get implemented or another one that could serve as a demonstration for hopefully larger projects in the future is going to be really critical. So let's talk about this, the mm-hmm. details of this project. Um, what, what would it do? What do you want to accomplish? Where would it be? What would it look like? Yeah, so you know, there are some plantings, there are trees, and it would start to enhance that. And also, one, serve to beautify that area and create a little bit more green space for the community when they're in this community space in general. But two, also work with all of the runoff that's coming off from that parking lot constantly and the debris maintenance and all of this. Um, and as Aaron pointed out, funnel that water into one area that would have trees or different types of vegetation um, serving as a pretty small rain garden and then using that to kind of parlay what that concept would look like in these larger spaces, such as the Walmart parking lot. Erin? Yeah, to build on that, we came up and, and walked the, the administrative facility and the, the library parking lots and, and saw some real opportunities there that would both create a little bit more friendly environment um, for, you know, shade and, you know, for kids who are waiting to get picked up and buses and, you know, looked at opportunities to, you know, imagine how green infrastructure could make that place more welcoming. And as we were walking around in the parking lot, we also noticed that there are a few areas where water was Clearly, we were there on a dry day, but clearly water was flowing down into like this corner and that corner over there, and the curbs were creating little barriers for that water to move on into the landscape. 
And also, they were collecting big puddles <laughs> and lots of dirt and grime and grease and grit. Uh-huh. And so, the, as a result, the pavement was actually deteriorating, and it was damaging the parking lot. And so, that is a great opportunity to reimagine what that parking lot can do and, and also reduce the maintenance or the damage being created by water that's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so one way to look at this is there are a lot of parking spaces, and in a few of those corners, nobody was parking there because it was either flooded or full of dirt. Right. <laughs> so I've noticed The that. idea was, yeah, why not just remove a parking space or two and replace it with a, a beautiful rain garden that provided filtration of that water and cleaning of, like, the oil and the antifreeze and the rubber from tires and all the other stuff that builds up on parking lots and then washes into our creeks and rivers and it rains. So, so why not just, you know, dig, literally dig out that parking spot and replace it with a landscape that absorbs the water, supports a new tree, and still allows the water to pass on, you know, downstream when it's, when it's full, um, and that has a little area in the front called a forebay or sediment trap that makes it easier than to come in and just scoop out the dirt, the grime, the trash with a shovel. And so the idea was that that design would simplify and uh, maintenance and minimize, you know, destruction of the pavement, which is already happening. China, do you want to add on to that? Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that's one of the beautiful things about these opportunities in Taos is even though there might be some upfront cost overall, implementing green infrastructure is going to not only help our community and do all of the lovely things that we wanted to do, but also financially really support the town in uh, minimizing the cost that exists that exists currently for debris maintenance and that's being spent on pavement and repairs, et cetera. So there is some maintenance that goes into a rain garden, but overall, I think the benefit far outweighs any of the cost. Right, and yeah. one of those costs that that uh, Aaron was mentioning, well, I think you both were mentioning, was the um, that the water, as we know how powerful water is, it um, it really wears on the infrastructure, wears on the curbs and the asphalt and the the, the sidewalks. Um, and so if we better manage that, we could probably save some money over time. Would, would you guys agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And, and I would also not want to belittle the maintenance question because uh-huh. all infrastructure has a cost to maintain. Mm-hmm. Some of it is so far out of sight in mind that we defer it until it fails. One thing that's nice about green infrastructure is that it doesn't allow you to do that so easily. <laughs> you see it. Yeah. You know, you see. Um, and it, it's actually a, it, it actually enhances resiliency because we can see where the work is needed much more easily or immediately than something that's, un, you know, underground and then you get a giant sinkhole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so there is a maintenance requirement, but it's more akin to gardening than it is to, um, you know, uh, street sweeping. And so there still has to be some level of investment in that maintenance piece. But there is some research out there showing that when compared to green infrastructure, to gray infrastructure, it's roughly similar, maybe a little bit more expensive. But a lot of the gray infrastructure uh, maintenance doesn't happen, and so it feels like a bigger cost. 
Um, but that's because a lot of the maintenance is just deferred. You know, one of the things, as you guys have been describing this project, one of the, um, the thoughts that I had immediately went to acequias. You know, we have people um, who are really concerned with our acequias and revitalizing our acequias. Um, uh, Taos Land Trust absolutely has supported that, and Rio Fernando Collaborative is, is part of that. Um, it seems as if, like, if we're building that shallow water aquifer and benefiting that shallow water aquifer by taking water from, just say, the library parking lot and putting that into the soil, correct me if I'm wrong, but my first thought was, uh, that this would be um, really attractive to acequia advocates because it would be a way to um, not only increase water in the uh, shallow aquifer, but also to, to clean that water. Am I right in my thinking? That's, yes. No, that's absolutely right, Jim. And the acequia systems are, I think, perhaps the most interesting water culture community infrastructure in the U.S., and so there's, I think there's a natural fit between how water is managed in an agricultural setting like that that still has a community connection um, to how green infrastructure can, can support that same goal. And in a place like Taos and even in a place like Santa Fe, um, maintaining that cultural connection to agriculture, to the acequia system, is, is perhaps like a goal that is a green infrastructure goal that doesn't exist other places, <laughs> but right. certainly could be one that exists here. Um, and I would think that um, framing a green infrastructure strategy for the town of Taos to enhance the, that aquifer and to provide cleaner water to, to the acequias or even into the Rio Fernando, which is feeding the acequias, that's all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got a little bit of update from the city of Santa Fe um, on on all of the green infrastructure work that's happening down here, and I do think it's worth for Taos to look at what's happening in Santa Fe because a lot of our work has a revolved around the idea of creating a living river because our river is dry yeah. much of the year, and so a green infrastructure approach that supports a policy and an ordinance and a practice of trying to keep water in that river and, you know, restore, we've restored miles and miles of it um, as a greenway and a community amenity that my family uses, Every, you know, very, very popular down here. And so this, this idea of an organizing concept to drive a green infrastructure strategy is, I think, really important. And, and I should say that in many places where green infrastructure has evolved or designed out, those have been places that have been under a regulatory mandate to improve water quality. Right. And that um, has been, we are not that far along out here. (laughs) Um, Right. And so while there are regulatory mandates to improve water quality, absolutely, and Santa Fe has one of those, um, certainly, and Albuquerque, uh, there are other reasons to motivate a community to organize. And Santa Fe, Tucson, there are a few places here in the Southwest that have done that really well and have connected the need for that infrastructure improvement to the need of the community. And that's where I think it's most powerful. And then meeting the regulatory goals absolutely are important, but that doesn't get people as excited. (laughs) 
Right. Well, and and that kind of revisits my rant from the <laughs> from the start of the show, which is um, if we don't take charge of our uh, our community, and if we don't uh, lead as a community, both at a town and county level, um, someone else will make will start to make making decisions for us. And um, some of those regulations, whether it be uh, building codes or planning, uh, how we how we plan uh, development, um, how we regulate water, how we regulate electricity, those uh, decisions might at some point, uh, given the climate emergency, be taken out of uh, our hands. And so it makes sense, as you're saying, to to, to jump in and and start doing some of this stuff within our own um, ability and with our own vision and within our own community needs before we're regulated from above. China, let's uh, talk more about this potential green infrastructure project here in Taos, which we're looking at the library parking lot. So one thing, and kind of tailing on your rage of this morning, which I think is... (laughs) My healthy rage. <laughs> yes, your healthy rage, your caffeine-induced rage. So we are completely in a climate crisis like we've never seen. And I spend most of my day, most of my time, thinking about the climate and thinking about resilience and community resilience here in Taos and other regions similar to Taos. And I think it would be really easy to just get depressed and feel scared about all of this. But at the same time, I think there's so much excitement in this moment and in this opportunity that we are presented with Um, to reimagine and kind of vision into how we want our communities to thrive into the future. And so I think that looking at that and channeling some of that excitement for Taos is so important, so absolutely important. And acequias, as you mentioned, are certainly like the lifeblood of some of this community. And in my heart, they matter so much. And they also, you know, matter in a climate resilience sense and in all these different food security senses for our community and culture, all of that. Um, and one thing that I think sometimes we forget or it's possible to forget is that water is obviously all connected. And so when we are supporting the resilience and the health of water in one area of the watershed, it's undoubtedly affecting the health and benefiting the health of water in other areas. Um, and so I think to make sure that as practitioners and as politicians and as community members that we're not re-siloing these areas of water and making sure that we are looking at it in this holistic perspective Uh, and understanding our impact to the water that other folks are using and the water that we're using, the water that the environment uh, naturally needs is also very important. So this project, I don't know that it's going to be implemented, truthfully, in the library parking lot. Maybe it will be in a few years. I think that right now it's been put on hold for a little bit and uh, there may be other areas in Taos where we could implement a green infrastructure project through the collaborative um, and through the town or the county. And I think that within that as well, doing a lot of community input and maybe town and county input as well to see where this, where this priority project might go is going to help enhance the demonstration success of it. And I know that that was done with this library parking lot space, and I think it would still be probably, in my opinion, one of the <laughs> better opportunities for a demonstration site um, but Jim, in your work with safe routes, do you think that there are areas that you have already identified that might be like prime for some green infrastructure development or like putting this on the roadways or on the Paseo? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I got certified in permaculture design like about maybe 12 years ago. And, um, and you know, my, my master's is in water, watershed management work. Um, and so I, I, I literally think about this all the time. And I walk around and I look at places where we could implement mm-hmm. um, green infrastructure all over town. Uh, I think there's, there's so many possibilities, like Aaron was talking about with just curb cuts, like a lot of very simple things. Some of the reconstruction that's going on along Paseo right now could be done in such a way that we could manage the water a lot better. Yeah, there's there's a, a, a huge number of opportunities in town, f- both on uh, public and private space, to better manage our water. Um, what probably would be an interesting um, workshop or tour to do around town at some point mm-hmm. of looking at different options around the community. You mentioned your feeling that, <laughs> that that this pilot project at the library parking lot might not actually take place. And mm-hmm. um, I know, you know, you brought up cost earlier. Is that one of the issues that we're facing? Yeah, it is. I think that also right now there is maybe some hesitation on part of certain decision makers to to go forward with this project um, I think given the fact that sometimes in our decision-making brains, we think of these things as a zero-sum game. Like, okay, if we invest in green infrastructure, then we're not investing in education or something else. And I think that it's also really important for us to remember that it's absolutely not a zero-sum game. That investing in green infrastructure is going to enhance our investment in other like very, very, very key areas of our community. Um, and also that there are so many sources of outside funding that as a collaborative, we're working to bring in to implement this, that it actually would not cost the town or the county any money um, and would hopefully not give them money, but would support them in decreasing their overall costs in general. And so that's the goal with some of these green infrastructure projects is that it costs nothing to the town or the county um, and simultaneously like actually helps reduce their spending that they are they're going through currently. So we will see how that progresses. I'm excited to keep an eye on it and keep working with Rachel and Aaron and so many different folks within the collaborative on this project. So on that subject of financing, because that, you know, money is always an issue. It's constantly an issue, especially Mm -hmm. here in New Mexico. What are some of the finance options? I'll I'll go to Aaron first, but then China, you talk about this one and specifically, Aaron, how can communities such as Taos finance green infrastructure work? Yeah, good question. So in many places where this has been more widely adopted, that financing has been tied to water quality requirements from stormwater permits. And so there's a few different ways that people have done that. Many cities have a stormwater utility, which actually um, bills the residents, right? So a a small bill um, and raises some funds to be able to invest in stormwater infrastructure. That can obviously be controversial in some places, um, maybe, maybe all places, but, but the reality is it's back to that question of infrastructure. Like we rely on these services that we don't even think about or see, and they have a money, a, you know, a monetary cost associated with them. So, so part of it is raising money from the, you know, a stormwater utility. Um, in some places where you can connect stormwater infrastructure improvements to water quality improvements, like in the, in the Rio Fernando and other rivers, there can be um, some funds available from, you know, uh, a water quality improvement type of 
of system um, from the federal or state government. There, there are also, um, you know, low interest rate, you know, loans and bonds that are, are sometimes utilized uh, for that purpose also. China. So we've been obviously pursuing this through grant opportunities um, and maybe looking at some of the funding mechanisms that Erin just mentioned. And I think another thing, though, too, is in order to implement these projects in the town of Taos, we do need town and county support, and therefore we do need community support for this. And hopefully one thing that we can be doing as well is uh, breaking the notion that these projects are like elitist or just like a nice thing reserved for Boulder, right? And really bringing it and grounding it down into our community and all of the examples that Erin mentioned. Um, so I also think that the more community support we get, the more support we'll have to pursue these funding mechanisms in Taos and therefore more support for actually implementing these projects. And in the last uh, four minutes that we have left, what what are some ways that you can involve the community? How can you, how could we demonstrate to our town that the different varied benefits of a project like hopefully at the library parking lot? So I think dialogue is always probably the most important place to start, but also uh, sometimes it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg. I think the more demonstration projects that we have, the more just integrated community experience there is around these projects and therefore community support naturally builds it does you know it's not a like an outside project that's coming in and being imposed I think that it is very much a community-based development of where we want these green spaces to exist where community members notice flooding you know just through a walk around in the library parking lot etc um, and responding to that voice and that observation and also just community understandings of of what has worked and what doesn't work and what we should be doing and, and community priority within that realm. And then getting that voice actively presented to decision-making officials to make sure that, you know, as a collaborative and in our consensus-based decision-making, uh, we are moving forward in a way that is absolutely reflecting our overall desires. Aaron, in some of the communities that you've worked with on green infrastructure, uh, how have you worked to involve community members and bring them up to speed on, on the benefits of a project like this? So I think one high-level suggestion for Taos and that we've seen in our other places we've worked is, is understanding the scale of the challenge and the, the potential that exists. And so a community mapping exercise um, Jim, it sounds like you have some thoughts. I'm sure other people have noticed uh, where water is going and challenged spots. And so an organized way of creating a, a, a map, um, it could even have a citizen science, you know, element to it. And so, you know, relying on community knowledge and experience with an organized, you know, kind of planning mapping process could be a really good next step. Um, and you get that buy-in early on where people say, oh, yeah, I, I see this, you know, potential here and there versus just hiring a consultant to come in and, and do it for you. <laughs> All right. That's, those are great ideas. China, are there any last thoughts that, that you have this morning? I, of course, always have more questions and I could talk with you guys for another hour at least. How do you want to wrap that up? I think I just want to wrap up kind of on what Aaron introduced us with of this concept of a practice of hope and the excitement that we do have in in this opportunity that is often seen as a crisis because it is a climate crisis, but really channeling that hope and that excitement and moving forward with that throughout our day and throughout our practitioner work, um, for me, is the best way to keep moving forward. Awesome. Erin, any last thoughts? Yeah, I'm just going to reinforce what China had to say. Um, 
yeah, practice of hope. And it, luckily for all of us, there are more and more resources coming out of the Southwest um, for how to do this. And so, you know, looking to Tucson and Santa Fe um, as Taos tackles this is, is a good start. Great. And I'm going to third that. Um, green infrastructure, a practice of hope. You've been listening to the Rio Fernando Collaborative Speaker Series, recorded and produced by Jim O'Donnell, edited by Brett Tomadin. Recorded live at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM, True Taos Radio, in Taos, New Mexico. For more information, visit www.riofernando.org. Thank you for joining us.